Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's great to see all of you this morning. We are continuing in our series in the New Testament letter of Ephesians, and we've titled this series, Who Are We? Because this letter is dealing with identity. Before I read the passage and I pray for us, I want to let you in on a little bit of a secret. A secret that you have to promise is going to stay just between you and me. Just between me and the 200 plus of you here this morning. But do you promise to keep the secret? I don't really have a secret to share with you this morning, but did you notice how all of you leaned forward in your seat? You opened your ears to listen. You kind of leaned in. Why is that? Because me sharing my secret with you is me sharing my heart. It lets you into my heart. And every one of us likes to be in, to be in on the secret. There's a sense of feeling honored and included when someone shares their secret with you. God's secret, it's a major theme of this letter to the Ephesian church. The word secret or mystery, it's used throughout the letter. In Ephesians 1 verse 9 Paul writes, God has made known to us the mystery, or he's made known to us his secret. Ephesians 3 verse 9, the passage we'll look at this morning, says the plan of his mystery that is now being brought into the light for everyone. God's secret, God's mystery, God's heart. N.T. Wright tells the story of a woman named Naomi who started a small dressmaking business in a part of Africa. The brightly colored fabrics of her part of Africa were extremely popular in her district, but she heard they were extremely popular around the world. So she employed two women to help with the dressmaking and employed a a young man to travel to the city to buy supplies. And one day, one of the women said, you know, I wonder if we can make other things as well as dresses with this fabric. Things like curtains or covers for chairs. And Naomi smiled as the others got excited about the thought. And Naomi went to her desk and took out a sealed envelope which had the date of when she started the original business. And she told one of the women to open it and read it, to read it out loud. And inside there was a plan for a much larger business that would make the wonderful fabrics into all sorts of things people might want in their homes. Naomi said, I kept Kept it a secret all this time. I knew if I told you from the start, you'd say I was daydreaming, and then you'd start daydreaming yourselves. We had to prove we could make dresses first. But this is what I have planned all along. The story of Naomi is not much different than the story of God and the story of God's people. The Jews in the Old Testament expected a Messiah to come and save and rescue them. They looked forward to the salvation where the Messiah would come and rule and reign over Israel. And the salvation of Israel through a Messiah was part of the plan. But it was not the full plan. There was a much bigger plan that no one was expecting. God's secret that was now coming into the light for all to be let in on. God's secret, God's heart from the very beginning was that a Messiah would redeem and save and create a whole new humanity, a new society 
And this is what Timothy preached on last week, a new society that would not be divided by walls of nationalism and racism and classism. Jew and Gentile would live together. Those on the inside and those on the outside would come together in love. God's secret was not just union with Christ, but through union with Christ, we would be united to one another across dividing walls and barriers that society and culture erect. So we're going to look at Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able as I read God's word to us. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was, not, was, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that is, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're here with us this morning and that you have spoken and revealed your heart with us, that you have let us in to your heart, that you've shared your secret Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to understand, you would inflame our hearts and illumine our minds and compel us to live in accordance with what you have declared to be true. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you this morning, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, let me share two New York Times articles with you. The first is a recent article came out a little bit over a week ago. And the title of the article is When Some Turn to Churches and Others Turn to CrossFit. Um, here's a caveat. I started CrossFitting almost four years ago with Jerry, who sits up in the balcony. We started together four years ago. I love CrossFit. I enjoy it. Well, a young woman, 27 years old, who was attending Harvard Business School was interviewed for the article, and she said CrossFit is, quote, family, laughter, love, community. She said she wakes every morning at 4.45 a.m. to go to her CrossFit gym where she met her now boyfriend, and when they were apartment hunting, they made their decision on the proximity to their CrossFit gym. In other words, life revolves around CrossFit. 
Greg Glassman, co-founder of CrossFit, was talking to a group of people and said, quote, we are the stewards of something, something salvific, even messianic. We are saving lives and saving thousands of them. 350,000 people will die this year from sitting on the couch. CrossFit is saving lives. The other article came out a little over a year ago. And it asked the question, why is ISIS so successful in recruiting people from the United Kingdom and the United States to leave their country and move to the Middle East or to stay in their country and become jihadis for ISIS? And what happened in San Bernardino, California this past week makes you wonder why a couple would do such a thing. But thousands every year in the United States are joining ISIS. Why? The writer of the article said, Again, quote, because liberal Western society offers young people no transcendent life purpose. In other words, life in the United States revolves around the next iPhone or the next house or the next car. And so young people are growing bored and they want more purpose. So some are joining ISIS. CrossFit's about belonging and has a purpose. According to Glassman, it's even salvific. ISIS is about belonging to something with a transcendent purpose, a holy war. So I want to ask a question this morning. What makes the new humanity, the new society that God is building different than CrossFit and ISIS? What makes what we're doing here at Christ Central distinct? We're going to look at three things. A view of self, a sacrifice for others, and a theater to display it all. Let's look first at a view of self. Verse 1 says, For this reason I, Paul. I'm going to stop right there. Paul, writing this letter, reminds the readers of the letter, some who may have never met Paul, who he is. Paul, who was once Saul. Saul was part of the elite. He was powerful. He was educated. Multiple degrees from Uh, what would be current-day Ivy League schools. He was a leader of the Pharisees, extremely moral. He was big Saul, big-time Saul. And then in Acts chapter 9, Saul encountered God. And he was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and his name was changed to Paul, which literally means small. Small Paul. And he starts this portion of the letter by reminding them, I, who was once big, important, powerful, am now small. In other words, life once revolved around me, but now life revolves around something completely different than me, around a person different than me. And he continues in verse 1, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul did not say he was a prisoner of Rome, though he was in prison in Rome while writing this letter, he says he is a prisoner of Christ. His life is not his own anymore. His life is chained to Christ. Whatever Jesus asks from him, he will do. And wherever Jesus asks him to go, he will go because life now revolves around Jesus. The reason for this newfound identity and view of self is that the grace of God was given to him, verse 2. Paul has experienced the grace of Jesus. He was personally experiencing the unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus, the many things that he's already mentioned in this letter, being chosen, adopted, forgiven, righteous. 
Paul did not have to do anything to earn God's love. There was no merit for for Paul to stand on. There was nothing for Paul to prove. God poured out his grace and love on Paul because God wanted to. And Paul believed and trusted. And this radically changed the way Paul viewed himself. Over Thanksgiving, Rachel and I went to watch the movie Creed. Now, I've grown to love Michael B. Jordan as an actor He stars in this movie, and I don't want to spoil it for you, but let me share a little bit about Creed, which is pretty much Rocky VIII, and the storyline of the Rockies. It's a great, great movie, story of the son of Apollo Creed, Adonis Johnson, who was conceived by his father Apollo right before Apollo died, but was conceived out of wedlock, as Apollo had an affair. And Adonis decides to leave his nice job as he was a grown-up and pursue boxing as a career, to follow in the footsteps of his father. He moves to Philadelphia. He gets Rocky to train him. He works hard, and towards the end of the movie, he gets a chance to fight the champion, pretty Ricky Conlon. And Rocky, trying to pump Adonis up towards the, the end of the fight, he, he looks at Adonis in between rounds, and he asked him, what are you fighting for? What are you fighting for? And he he looks at Rocky and he says, to prove I was not a mistake. You could take that to mean to prove that he was not a mistake to be fighting in this championship fight, but I think the deeper meaning was to prove that he was not a mistake in life, that he was fighting for and living for the purpose of proving to the world that he was somebody, that he was worthy of being a creed. He wasn't a mistake because he was conceived through an affair. Deep down, if we're honest, most of us spend our lives trying to prove we're not a mistake. That we are worth something. Yet when the grace of Christ radically changes our hearts, we no longer are fueled to prove ourselves, no longer try to earn merit, We could say with a great sigh of relief and freedom, I once thought I was big, but now I'm small. I once was imprisoned to my own passion and desires to be somebody and prove I am somebody, but now I'm a prisoner of Christ, bought and purchased by his very life, death, and resurrection. Paul's view of himself has been radically changed by God's grace. In verse 8, he continues to describe his view of himself, and he says, I am the very least of all the saints. Now, what does that even mean? How can you be the very least? How can you be less than the least? See, Paul takes a superlative, I'm the least, and he strengthens it. He takes a new, he makes a new phrase and breaks the rules of grammar. Those of you who love grammar, we wouldn't have been happy with Paul. He says, I'm the least of the least. I am the leastest. Paul is the leastest of all Christians. Paul, who planted tons of churches. Paul, the father of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, a martyr for his faith. The leastest. What does that make me and you? Yet Paul says in verse 12 that Christians have boldness and confidence. It's the very least, yet confident. Paul is both deeply humble and boldly confident. This view of self, humble confidence, should be a major distinction of a Christian. 
thus the Christian community that we call the church. If you're not a Christian, this might sound a little weird. But to say, I am the least, sounds like someone has a poor self-image. And when someone says, I have boldness, it sounds like someone is cocky. And you may have encountered Christians that live with both a, a false humility and false pride. And I want to share with you and Christians, remind us that, that Christians, we struggle. We often struggle. We don't want to come right out and say how proud we are of our recent exhibition of holiness because we want everyone to think we're humble. And on the other hand, we desperately can't stand it when people don't notice us. The gospel of grace gives us a unique identity. A gospel where Jesus was humble to the point of death. He became the least so we can be confident. His humility on the cross allows us to confess our failures and his resurrection over death keeps us from being crushed in our failures. If we can live with this view of self, Overcome by the grace of God to us, not trying to prove ourselves deeply humble and boldly confident in Jesus, I think it will produce an authenticity that is distinctive, even appealing. The second thing is a sacrifice for others. Because Paul has experienced the grace of God, he now says in verse 2, he is a steward of this grace towards the Gentiles. Steward. We don't use that word very often. To be a steward is to be given someone else's property for the purpose of giving it away. It's like an executor of an estate. When someone passes away, a person might be appointed as the executor of the estate. That does not mean that all the possessions of the deceased now become the executors. Rather, the executor has the responsibility to distribute the possessions to the rightful people. Paul is now a steward of God's grace. He has been given God's grace so that he can give it away to others. Paul is even willing to be imprisoned and to suffer so that others can know the love and grace of God. Martin Burnham was a missionary in the Philippines, recently killed. He was held captive by the Abu Saif terrorist group for 376 days. He was made to be a servant carrying terrorist supplies, he never complained, viewed his service to the terrorist group as an opportunity for the gospel. Talk about a man who has forgotten himself and become wrapped up in Christ. Martin would go out of his way to help his captors. He told his wife, the Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness, let's go all the way. And his captors would debate who would imprison him each night because Each one hated to chain him because at the end of the night, Martin would thank them. And each night, his captors, because of the way Martin treated them, would sit and listen to him explain the gospel of Christ, the grace that had changed Martin and that was now offered to his captors. Brothers and sisters, this is a distinctive of the new humanity a people who go out of their way to love and extend grace to all people, especially to those who don't deserve it, even to people you might dislike and even hate. We are to be stewards of God's grace, sacrificing for others. The UPS man 
who delivers to our house also delivers here to the church. And every morning he, he takes or he goes to the UPS warehouse, gets the brown truck, and he backs it up and he loads all the boxes into the truck and then he drives home and he opens all the boxes for himself and his family like it's Christmas morning every morning, right? No, he would no longer be working at UPS if that's the case. He, he distributes them to the rightful people. We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are to distribute this grace to all people. Over the past year, there have been two words that have been stuck in my mind and my heart as I think about our church. The first is leadership and our need for it for you to lead in this church and to lead us forward. And the second is stewardship. Stewardship. I wake up every morning so excited and thankful that I get to serve this church and this community. I'm serious. I'm humbled that I, that I get to serve this church. I think about people who have bought homes in this city and said, we're planting roots. We want to live here. I think about people who work at the hospital healing physically broken bodies. I think about people who've come out of homelessness and who've come out of joblessness. I think about people who've moved their jobs and their companies to downtown Durham. I think about people who are creating jobs. I think about people who are raising children to know the Lord and teaching their children to extend God's grace to all people. I think about people who are recovering addicts who tell their story of recovery. I think about students who are studying at Durham Tech and North Carolina Central, and Duke, and UNC Chapel Hill, and how they will impact their campus now and the world in the future. I think about people working for nonprofits that are making local and global impacts. I think about people who are creative, entrepreneurs, musicians, moms, and dads. I think about eight city groups meeting during the week, a worship team that is incredible, a staff team that I love, people who are passionate about what we're called to as a church I seriously wake up each morning as a pastor of this church and I'm humbled and I'm thankful and I ask God, how can we distribute all these gifts that all of these people have? How can we give away our talents and our resources so that others can know God's grace? We're two years in to this church. Look at all God has done. Grace was not given to Paul for himself. Grace is not given to you for yourself. Grace has not been given to this church for ourselves. We're to give it away, which is why we want to plant more churches and support more local ministries and support more global ministries. We exist to distribute all that God has given to us. How are you doing at stewarding all that God has given to you? Sacrificing for others is a distinctive of the new humanity. The last thing is a theater to display it all. God's secret, God's heart is verse six. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul three times is saying that Gentiles and Jews are together. In Hebrew, if you say something twice, it's for emphasis. To say something three times is to make it resound with thunder, like holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Paul is saying Jew and Gentile are together, together, together. 
Those who have been lifelong enemies are now united into one family. What has been historically at odds now love one another. And the way this is to be displayed to the world is through the church. Verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. 81% of people who say they are Christians and are right with God and in a relationship with God say they can do so without the church. They say it's just me and Jesus. And Paul is saying, no way. Paul is saying the whole point is the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. And when Paul uses this word the majority of the time, he is not talking about some vague, abstract collection of Christians into one body. Rather, he is talking about a church with elders and deacons and meeting times and nursery and cleaning stinky diapers and sacraments and eating meals together and Christmas parties. It's in this place that God is displaying his grace and proclaiming his manifold wisdom. The church is the main point. And it doesn't mean that the church is perfect. The church is messy. The church is made up of sinners who are broken. And so the church may have hurt you or the church might hurt you in the future. She's affected by sin too, but don't give up on the church. The church is God's plan A. It has always been the way that God wants to display his grace to the whole world. This is the secret. This is the secret. The church is God's plan A, not plan B. We are the A-team, Christ Central Church. One of the things I love about being able to worship in this beautiful building, in this stunning old sanctuary, is all of the stained glass. Stained glass was originally created and, and used as a way of telling the story of God, as a way of declaring the grace of God. No words, just pictures on a stained glass. The church is God's stained glass to the world. The world is to look and see the story of God's grace in us. God's manifold multicolored, multifaceted wisdom is put on display in the theater of the church. Notice it's not necessarily done through what the church says, though our words are important, but it's through what the church is. A community in which men and women and children of every race, color, social, and cultural background come together in the joyful worship of the one true God. The church is not only the theater to display God's grace to a watching world, it's also the theater to display God's grace to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, verse 10. The church is the place where the victory of God is put on display and reminds the angels and demons that God's kingdom will triumph. The church is the place where when angels look upon us and they see a diversity of people understanding the grace of Christ which compels them to give that grace away to others, the angels dance. And when demons look upon us, they shudder. The church not only transforms our world, but it transfixes heaven. I love going to CrossFit. Enjoy my friends there. And the sad thing is that sometimes things like CrossFit can promote community better than the church. It can be a place of family, laughter, love, and community. And that should sober 
us. Because God richly dwells among us. This makes us different, church, than any social group or special interest group. God is doing something that the world has never seen. He's doing it in us, making a people who have a humble confidence in Christ, a sacrificial love for others, a diversity of people worshiping together as one body. CrossFit may help people stay healthy, but we, Christ Central Church, have the bread of eternal life. We offer a love that will never let you go and a grace that is rich and free. Should we not share it? Should we not invite people in? Will you? Will you share it? And will you invite people in? Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would Help us to to hear and to understand and to comprehend your heart. That we would see Christ and that he would be big and we would be small. That we would be overwhelmed by the grace of God to us. That we would sacrifice our lives to give away that which you have given to us. That we would be one family, one body of the church in which the manifold wisdom of God is put on display. Lord, would you do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.